bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another day. Just to be alive and breathe, have our heart beat another day. Another chance to bring you glory in this world before we meet you face to face. Help us keep proper fear and respect and awe for you and the fact that you're the giver of life the one who allows us to continue and the one who allows us to participate in your marvelous plan. Father, most of all, we thank you for sending your son out of heaven to become a man, being born to die, being born to take the judgment of the world upon himself so that our sins could be forgiven. Father, we ask that you bless this message have your spirit guide us and teach us. And it's in Christ's precious name we pray, by the power of your spirit. Amen. The Difficult Passages, Grace and Works, Part 30. So Sunday, if you were here, uh, you, you know it was a chock-full message on Sunday, full of wisdom and also a variety of topics woven together. So you might want to listen to Sunday's message again, as today will be a, a somewhat minimal review, uh, as we hopefully are going to get through this series on grace and works today uh, in totality. So we'll see if the spirit changes that again. But we're going to review some major points from Sunday, starting with Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19. So turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 30, 19. We'll see this verse one more time. And, you know, it goes back to the simplicity of God's plan. And what God's looking for from us is not something that should be a mystery at all. It's right there. And um, it's just like a father wants his children to love, love him and follow them, right? It's the same picture. So Deuteronomy 30, 19, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, and by holding fast to him. For this is your life and the length of your days, that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. So here we see to live basically a blessed life, even though we're not living in the Old Testament, to live a blessed life, to be blessed by the Lord, is to live life by His standards, or what He says is true life. So we saw this on Sunday on the board, simply, simply worshiping God Almighty. Choose life in order that you may live. How do you choose life? What does that mean? And it's, it's stated so clearly and wonderfully in verse 20, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, holding fast to him. That's how we choose life. This is not our opinion. This is not what we would think life is. But true life, according to God, is this on the board. And that's how we find it. In this way, you and I will be fulfilled and have a life of peace and joy. Again, it's contrary to what the flesh says. But in this way, God says, this is true life, and this is how you will experience what I want you to have. 
And when you think about it, why wouldn't we love and hold fast to the giver of life? He's a giver of life. How foolish it would be to not love him and hold him fast. But that's where faith comes in because we don't see him. Like we might see a person on earth that we love or respect. So that's where faith comes in. Of course, this is against the instincts of the flesh. But God wants us to live in his love always. And in that is the true joy of life. We also saw on Sunday Deuteronomy 6.4. Go there again. Deuteronomy 6.4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. So on the board we saw this also on Sunday. The Lord is one. One is from Echad in the Hebrew. It refers to unity, not singleness. Same word used to describe one flesh between husband and wife in Genesis 2.24. And I find that very interesting because, again, we're talking about two people in that scenario. Two people are described as one. So, obviously, why can't they be a trinity and they be one? And the Jewish people have trouble with this, by the way. They don't understand how, wait a minute, the, our you know, Bible says the Lord is one. How can there be a trinity? But here's your answer right here. One speaks of unity, not singleness, in number. It not only implies monotheism, but the trinity as well. God is unity. This is the same Lord God who indwells you as a believer and desires your worship. What is baptism? When we learn about baptism, we learn that we're placed in union with the Lord himself, with the Lord Jesus Christ. And his Holy Spirit did that for us when we first humbled ourselves and trusted in Christ for salvation. So think about it. God invites man to live fully in his realm with him. This is one of the things I took from Sunday. God, almighty creator of heaven and earth, invites man who has rebelled against him to live fully in his realm with him and to be fully, completely united with him. And we're not talking about God giving us a piece of the kingdom. You know what I mean? We're not talking about him saying, okay, I forgive you. Come on over here and sit in the corner. He's saying, I want you to be totally one with me. I want you to have all of me and all the blessings that come with being unified with me. It blows the mind, and we cannot fully comprehend this right now, but just think about that perspective. God invites us to live fully in his realm with him. The God who is unity wants us to enjoy unity with him even in this life. And how is that? It's simply by loving him. Look again at Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. So we heard a different perspective on the gospel on Sunday on the board. 
is the gospel is an invitation from the eternal God of the universe to spend eternity with him in perfect, blissful, loving fellowship. We were born disunited from him, but through Jesus we are unified with the unity that is God. The gospel is the most intimate invitation ever given. A few of us were talking about this the other day. Um, I mean, what, this is a great perspective and a great way to share the gospel with someone. You know, it's an invitation. You have an invitation. I was thinking about this today, too. You have an invitation from God to be at total peace with him. Total, 100% peace, uh, nothing between you anymore. That's, that's a picture of the gospel. And some people say, oh, I don't really think I need to be at peace with him, right? They don't realize their sin. But if you realize that you have sin and God offers you total 100% peace, no strings attached, nothing in the way, total unification with him, that's a great way to present the gospel. To tell people God desires an intimate relationship with you and he wants to adopt you as his own. That's really the proper perspective of the gospel. And the love of God is forefront in his gospel. So yes, man must repent to receive it all by faith. But love is the motivation of God toward man. Love is the motivation of God toward man. And that invitation should be clearly made known to people, as in John 3.16. Our God is looking for the simple, pure devotion of the heart towards him. On the board, we've been talking about simplicity lately. The simplest people are often the ones who bring the most glory to God. The greatest compliment that we can ever give a person is that they are simple and pure in their devotion to Christ. I mean, I, I, whenever I bump into somebody like this, uh, they stand out like a sore thumb in a good way. I guess that's not, sore thumb's not a good term, but you know what I mean? They really stick out. <laughs> They're really obvious to me. And it's actually pretty rare. I mean, I don't know if you agree, but it's pretty rare to see somebody that has this pure, simple love and devotion to Christ and doesn't let anything else get in the way of that. And that's, that's truly what it's all about. Again, back to the faith of a child. And think about it. You're all reading your Bibles by now on your own. What do you see as you read your Bibles? What do you see like as the overall theme throughout the whole Word of God? One of them is that God wants our hearts. Is there anything more that God wants from us than our hearts? And that, in essence, solves every problem. It's the way to salvation. It's the way to living life with His joy and peace. He just wants our hearts. And, by the way, if He has our hearts... Doesn't he then have our love and obedience? Doesn't he then have our humility and servanthood? So again, which has been the common thread over the last couple of years, heart issues. God always looks at the heart, whatever is going on, whatever the topic is. That's what he wants in whatever we do. And we know that God cannot be mocked or fooled. 
by religion, for example, or by us faking it. He desires our hearts. So back to simplicity. We recalled on Sunday that Jesus washed the feet of the disciples. While there are several possible meanings to this passage, the act of serving was as simple and humble and pure as it gets. To wash someone else's feet, especially back in that day, that was not a pretty picture. You think you, you, you're worried about someone's sweaty feet after they take off their socks. Back then, you walked around in sandals in the streets where there was excrement. And for you to do this kind of a thing was to truly bow down like in humility before somebody. And the Lord himself did this. So we talked about Jesus' example to us. As in John 13, 15 through 16. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. This is right after he washed their feet. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. The Lord's simply saying, if I, your master, serves others in this way, we're not talking about even dignified ways of serving others. In a way, this was undignified. It was like getting your hands dirty, right? Literally. It, Lord says, if I, if I serve others in this way, shouldn't you? Follow my lead. Through love, serve one another. And what does this foster? It fosters unity, if you think about it. It builds love and unity in the body. And this is an illustration also of both grace and works. The Lord washing the disciples' feet. Beautiful picture of both grace and works. So regarding that topic, our series, Grace and Works, grace is not a complicated subject. Neither is works. Holy doctrines only become complicated when we lose sight of the big picture, our spiritual compass. Grace and works really go hand in hand. Go hand in hand. Because if you're living by grace, you do good works. You know? They're in unity. And when we humbly get out of the way, what happens is we don't force anything. And we stop being religious. We get out of the way. We live by grace, which causes us, motivates us, to do good works. So, you know, we just say in humility, this is what the Word says. I'm going to believe it, and I'm going to follow him and follow his example. Keeping with the big picture in mind, we've been taught about the relationship between justification and salvation and proper perspective on those things. So let's review a few points on this, on justification, as uh, this has been a pretty wonderful theme the last few lessons and the last blog. First of all, on justification, if the doctrine of justification were equivalent to the doctrine of salvation, we wouldn't call them out differently. Salvation is a much larger subject than just the judi judicial forensic aspects of what happens when God saves us. I hope you see that by now, and I hope you've read the blog last Saturday. Um, so a good definition of justification we saw on Sunday on the board 
Justification is the declaration from the judge himself that you have been found righteous in his eyes based on the merits of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. As a judicial concept, justification primarily deals with the penalty of sin. So the penalty is removed and believers are declared innocent by the judge. But as the Spirit's been saying through both messages and blogs lately, is this the end of salvation? Is this the entire good news of the gospel? May it never be. The gospel goes way beyond these wonderful judicial facts that are awesome and true. There's a wonderful life of salvation given to us upon justification, upon being declared innocent. So you're not just declared innocent, you're given new life, right? So on the board again, justification opens the door to reconciliation, which implies a real relationship between a new creature come alive in Christ and a living God. This is not merely a judicial reality, but a very personal one. Salvation means being saved and also delivered to something. Do you remember that teaching on how we're saved from sin and delivered to righteousness? So salvation means being saved and delivered to something. Not just justified and like close the book. On the board, justification is not the close of salvation. It is how God can righteously adopt his children into his holy family. The penalty is no longer an issue for a saved person. Eternal life is much more than simply being justified. It is a gift in and of itself. That's why the scriptures make that differentiation. So a sentence may remove the penalty, but freedom must be experienced as a change of personal circumstances for it to be real. And as we've been seeing, God's grace acting upon a person brings a real change. That's been the message for the last year and a half almost. God's grace acting upon a person brings a real change. God's changes, God's grace is never impotent. It always changes someone. It has to. A new life is given and wonderful realities come with salvation, even after justification. Go to Titus 3.5 again. Titus 3.5. After Timothy. It's funny, I was one of the ones pastor was talking to on Sunday. I couldn't find Titus on Sunday. <laughs> and he said after Timothy, but it was too late. These small books are sometimes hard to find. You don't go to them too often, and you're like, where is that again? Anyway. Titus 3.5. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly, through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. 
So on the board, justification and salvation. A person is never justified if they're not saved. A person is never saved that is not justified. They can't, you know, not be together. This does not make justification and salvation the same thing. Only simultaneous grace. Some make the mistake of placing an equal to sign between the two concepts. They're not the exact same thing. Salvation is much bigger, much more involved. So passages like Titus chapter 3 reveal multiple distinctions and how salvation encompasses much more than justification. For example, the end of verse 7, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So on the board, we saw this on Sunday also, salvation is a miracle. While the Bible reveals that many things occur at salvation simultaneously, and we accept this by faith, there are codependencies on certain concepts like justification and adoption or adoption and blessings or baptism and indwelling. There are codependencies. The Spirit's been telling us, keep the big picture in mind. Never think you got it all figured out. Stop putting God's grace in a box and trying to, you know, put limits on it in a way. Be careful not to limit God's grace in any way. Don't add to it or don't subtract from it, right? It goes way beyond what we think grace goes to. We can study the Bible to the end of our lives and we'll never fully fathom grace. And we don't need to fully define it. Defining it means putting definite limits on something. That's what definition is. You're putting definite limits on something. And that, you know, we do that in our studies because we're trying to understand and grasp the things of God. But ultimately, God's grace is supernatural and unlimited. Amen? I mean, that's what's so awesome about it, that we can't figure it out, that we can't fully define it and know where it ends because it doesn't. On the board, it's really infinite grace. God's grace is certainly not fully definable, but rather infinite. Not finite, but endless. And that includes all he does for us at salvation. I mean, we do our best to learn from the word of God and the, the different parts of salvation, okay? And, you know, we, we see how things go together and we, we're still only getting a small view out the window of what's really going on. <laughs> I'm not going to bring up the seagull again. I was just picturing looking out the train window, you know. Uh, so really, though, that's how limited our view is, even after a whole lifetime of studying the Word of God. That's how limited our view is of His grace. How awesome is that? So, you know... God's grace and salvation will never fully be able to define it, thank God. Embrace the supernatural ways of God by faith. By faith. Stop relying on your intellect for your comfort or your security. By faith. Thank God that he's way smarter than you 
And the sooner we accept that, the sooner we're set free from our own garbage in the soul. So it's this miracle of grace, the fact that Almighty God wants to unite us to himself for all eternity. That's what needs to be joyously shared with unbelievers. The God of all creation wants to unite us to himself for all eternity. Again, (laughs) I don't know what else to say, but as I try to imagine that, as I try to think about that, what that means, you can't. You can't can't picture it. That he truly wants to unite us 100% with him. And he does. And he already has. So... As we do this, as we tell people about this miracle of grace that God's offering us and the unity with him, we also tell people the whole story of the gospel as well. And we were reminded on Sunday this should be done on God's terms, not man's terms. God calls man to repent, to turn to him in humility, and the one who does this is saved and united with his love forever. That's the miracle of salvation. But don't fall into the trap of giving an accommodating gospel. Give the whole story. The worst thing that we can do is misrepresent the gospel to an unbeliever. That came up on Sunday. It's really the worst thing we can do is misrepresent the gospel to an unbeliever. To mislead them. Whether on purpose or accidentally. Right? So as the Spirit gave us on Sunday, as we give this the, the full gospel and, and, and um, tell people the whole story, expect confrontation on the gospel. I mean, the gospel is the good news, but expect confrontation. Because you know what? Nobody wants it easy. People want to have a peace in earning everything in this world. The flesh wants to have a peace in earning everything. And so when the flesh is cut out, the flesh acts up. And unless someone's at the end of their rope, at the, you know, at the bottom, hit rock bottom, so to speak, then they're usually not humble enough to accept the gospel the first time right away. And so you should expect confrontation. The flesh doesn't want to admit it needs anybody, especially God. That's the flesh. I'm a good person on my own. Why do we need God's forgiveness? I have people in my life that tell me they're not a sinner. What do you say beyond that? I don't don't really know. You, You know, you follow the leading of the Spirit, but they're not ready. The flesh is acting defensively. Think about it that way. The flesh is acting defensively. Anytime you attack somebody, right? Anytime you... You tell somebody, this is what they should do. What do you want to do? I'm not going to do that because you told me. It might be the right thing to do, but I'm not going to do it because you told me to do it. Right? That's the flesh. i got to be in control. So expect the flesh to act defensively, thinking it's good enough on its own. And if you expect it, you won't be surprised when it happens. It's all part of the plan. It's got to happen, at least with some people. So on the board, the gospel is offensive. The true gospel will make an arrogant person stumble because it's offensive to them. However, a humble person will accept the same gospel as truth and be saved. 
So because of this confrontation thing that comes up when you give the gospel to people, because you know it's possible every time you give the gospel, it's easy to give into the temptation to water down the gospel. Very easy in your own soul to back off a little, to not tell the whole truth. It's, it's a temptation in your flesh. And I can say I did this for years, unknowingly, thank God. But, you know, I, I had a watered-down version of the gospel, not telling the whole story. And it's also because it's much easier to give the good news without giving the whole picture. It, honestly, it is. I mean, on the board, look, look at this uh, regarding the watered-down gospel. It's so much easier to avoid the conversation about sin and the need to repent and just run to just believe in Jesus. Don't worry about your attitude towards sin or if your heart's in it. Just skip over that and sign on the dotted line. It's almost like we try to hurry people into salvation. Almost like before they realize what hit them or before they have to count the cost, like Jesus said. Like we want to rush them into salvation. Why we want to do that? I guess it's the flesh. You know, maybe keeping score or something. Or doesn't want that confrontation. But again, it's so much easier to avoid the conversation about sin and the need to repent. Your flesh wants to run from that. But we've got to be real with people and tell them the situation, the reality of their need. Instead of just running to say, you know, uh, just believe in Jesus, don't worry about your attitude. And we may not say this literally, right? We don't tell people, don't worry about your attitude towards sin or if your heart's not in it. We say it by avoiding it and just skipping over the fact that it is a heart issue. As Pastor said on Sunday, just sign on the dotted line. Quick, hurry up. You know, it's like, what are you, making a deal? Like, do you have to be, does your heart have to be in it or not? Of course we know it does. But the watered-down gospel doesn't say that. So make sure people know that saving faith is an issue of the heart. Why do some Christians give this watered-down gospel? Because they can avoid anything that might offend somebody. And that might be nice for them, but it's not nice to the person we're sharing it with. If you decide to do the Lord's work, the Lord's way, then you will be offensive to some people when you give the gospel. And nobody likes rejection, you know? But just think how much Jesus was rejected. Like when you lose heart, when you're tempted to give in and, and you don't want to give the, the full story, so to speak, or you don't want to face the risk of being rejected, they're not really rejecting you, by the way, right? They're rejecting Christ, really. But when, you, when you're tempted to give in to that feeling or whatever, just think of Jesus and how often he was rejected. And think of the apostles and how often they were rejected. And then it will seem much less to what we have to go through or experience. But, again, it's, it's accepting. It's accepting that there will be confrontation. And, in fact, it's divinely good. It's divinely good that you step out there by faith and give the whole, whole gospel, and you tell them the whole story, and if they reject you, it's part of the plan. You did God's work the right way.
So back to grace and works and the practical side of living the spiritual life on the board. One of the easiest ways to discern if your works are by grace is to understand your motivation. If the predominant motivation isn't towards pleasing God, then you need to step back and question your actual motives. And this takes, this takes you being willing to look at your own heart. This takes you stepping back and saying, why am I doing this right now? You know, and maybe even asking God, you know, Father, show me why am I doing this? Am I doing this with the right motivation? And when you discover, if you discover that the main motivation for some work you want to do is not pleasing God, it might even be a selfish motivation, then step back. You're better off not even doing it. Check your motives. Try again. One of the easiest ways to discern if your works are by grace is to understand your motivation. If the predominant motivation isn't toward pleasing God, then you need to step back and question your actual motives. And always remember that grace is not meant to accommodate man, which means grace is not meant to accommodate you. You. It's not meant to make it easy for you. So you don't do it the Lord's way to make it easier for you? How selfish is that when he went to the cross for us? So grace is not meant to accommodate you, you giving the gospel, you doing works. Those works aren't supposed to fit into your life so smoothly that, you know, you don't have any problems. So life is not about making things as easy as possible on yourself. It's about doing the Lord's will, the Lord's way. And grace accommodates God and his plan, not ours. So by grace, our works will also accommodate God and his plan. By grace, we will do works that accommodate God and his plan, not our own. So on the board, if you're thinking, saying, doing something on the premise that grace accommodates man, then you can rest assured that fundamentally, whatever it is you're doing, a.k.a. your works, are wood, hay, and straw. Again, if you're thinking, saying, or doing something on the premise that grace accommodates man, then you can rest assured that fundamentally, whatever it is you're doing, your works are going to be wood, hay, and straw. 1 Corinthians 3.12 More on the practical side of things. How does this affect us? And what about heart issues? There's no blessing guaranteed from works done outside of true grace orientation. If God sees that your heart is self-centered, and fleshly, then you can't expect the blessing you'd receive if your heart was selfless and godly. Hope that makes sense. There's no blessing guaranteed from works done outside of true grace orientation. So if your motive is not grace, if you're not motivated because of the grace God's shown you, for example, and that's why you do the works, for others or for him and something is wrong with the motive your motivation if there's a self-centered motivation in your heart 
or a fleshly motive. For example, to not offend anybody, to, to have it go nicely for you, etc. Well, you can't expect the blessings you'd receive if your heart was selfless and godly. And we're talking about spiritual blessings. We're talking about peace, contentment, joy, the, these things that are supernatural, spiritual things that we only really receive through obedience, through walking by grace, receiving His grace, passing on His grace. If our works aren't by grace, then they're wood, hay, and straw. On the board, that's why this is so important in Psalm 111.10, Part A, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you're not doing things because of the Lord and because of the mercy and grace He's shown you, and you're not doing things because you know He's the omnipotent God and He can do whatever He wants and He can even take you home early if He wants. If you don't have that proper perspective that you're here as a, a privileged servant, you have the privilege of serving Him for now, for a short time, then you're going to be lost. Your motivation is going to be off. But when you have the fear of the Lord... It's the beginning of wisdom. You know your place. You realize it's all by grace. And therefore you serve Him. You do good works based on that. That's why the fear of the Lord is so important. How much has the Spirit said the last year on the fear of the Lord? For believers. Because it's having the right, proper perspective. It's having humility before your God and Creator. So, reflect for a minute. Are you disappointed with your life? We've all been there. Uh, maybe you're there right now. Are you disappointed with your life? Then maybe your heart is being selfish, not for God and His plan. And maybe you have selfish, selfish expectations. Remember on the board, disappointment is nothing more than failed expectations. So if you're disappointed, something's off with your expectations. They may not be godly expectations. They may be fleshly, selfish expectations. Disappointment is nothing more than failed expectations. So if we ever find ourselves disappointed with our lives, we must immediately step back and ponder the cause. Kind of, again, like examine your motivation. It's usually our expectations are off. Are they aligned with God's will for your life? Are your expectations aligned with God's will for your life? Or are you like half God's will, half, half your will? Do we fear God? If your expectations are off, why? Do you fear God properly? Are we keeping His commandments? Are we loving Him? These might be the reasons that our expectations are off and we live a disappointed life some days. Again, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We're here on earth for Him, not for ourselves. We're pilgrims passing through. And when we get in trouble is when we forget that, right? We're pilgrims passing through. 
This is part of fearing the Lord properly. Let's continue with our closing thoughts on grace and works. On the board, there's no laundry list or honeydew list in the Bible that gives us what are good and bad works. Something may be good for one person, but bad for another. God doesn't judge based on the activity itself. Rather, he looks at the person's heart. God doesn't judge based on the activity. Rather, he looks at the person's heart. This is why you'll never be blessed for simply doing something. Your heart must be, quote unquote, in it. We've seen that over and over. God looks at the motivation. God looks at the heart. Two people can do the exact same thing, and it could appear to be good. But to one person or for one person, it's a good thing because their motivation's right. For the other person, they're doing the exact same good deed for some selfish gain. And that's why we can never judge another person's works. God looks at the heart. So, you know, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. God looks at the heart. Worry about your own motivation. Worry about if you're doing things by grace. If your works are by grace. Or maybe they're not. Maybe they're for the wrong reason. Ponder the following which came from uh, Thursday's lesson regarding first order blessings. The blessing is in your attitude, not necessarily how your actions are received by others. You must stay focused on the fact that God sees the heart. If you give graciously to others with proper motivation, God is pleased, even if the other person responds poorly or ungratefully, etc. I mean, sometimes we give to others with good motivation and they spit on us. Yet we know it was God's will to do so in the first place. We know God called us to help them or give to them or serve them. So that's good. If your motivation was good, that's good in God's eyes. But Satan, remember, wants us to grow weary of doing good. So sometimes he uses people to spit in your face figuratively, hopefully. Uh, sometimes he'll use people to discourage you when they reject your grace. Maybe might be regarding the gospel, might be regarding to helping them. And Satan will try to get you weary. But we have to keep focused on the fact that God sees our heart. Don't focus on the flesh of others. Don't focus on your own flesh. The viewpoint of your own flesh. If we do that, we're going to inevitably grow weary and quit. Again, perspective is so important. Remember Hebrews 12.3 on the board. For consider him, Jesus, who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Nobody's ever endured the type of hostility that Jesus endured even though he was pure goodness. Nobody's ever endured the hostility he endured. So if he can endure that and not grow weary and lose heart, 
but know his father was watching and approving because his motivation was good, his heart was good. If he can do that, we can do that because it's to a much lesser scale that we face hostility. So again, the point is subtle but very important on the board. The blessing is in your attitude, not necessarily how your actions are received by others. You must stay focused on the fact that God sees the heart. If you give graciously to others with proper motivation, God is pleased, even if the other person responds poorly or ungratefully. And this is one of the primary ways to discern our maturity, spiritually speaking. Do we give like Jesus gives? Do we give the way Jesus gives? What's going on in our heart when we give? Why do we give? Turn in your Bibles to Luke 23, verse 33. Luke 23, 33. Do we give the way Jesus gives? By grace with no expectations in return. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. When Jesus said this, he literally had one person on one side of him that was saved and someone on the other side of him that was not saved. And a whole bunch of people below him jeering at him. If Jesus were less of a man, I suppose he could have responded the way many of us do under much less stress. The heck with all of you. He could have closed his heart to the people and not shown grace. But that wouldn't be grace. That wouldn't be him. That would be a perfect illustration of a man who chose to accommodate himself over God. But Jesus showed grace under the greatest pressure. So here's what that scene shows us on the board. If you have a grace-oriented heart, your works will be good. If you have a grace-oriented heart, your works will be good. Good works are not qualified by what they are. Rather, they are qualified by how and why they are done. Motivation is everything. We garner, garner motivation from perspective first, this is what the Spirit's been teaching us in this series. For example, the Scripture says, God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. Why? His heart's right. His heart wants to give out of grace. God looks at our hearts in how and why we do what we do. Not at the act itself. So again, on the board, if you have a grace-oriented heart, your works will be good. That's like all you have to worry about. Remember we talked about earlier in the lesson, is there anything more than God wants in our hearts? And if our hearts are right, everything else is going to be in place. The love, the obedience, the, 
joy, the humility. If you have a grace-oriented heart, your works will be good. Good works are not qualified by what they are. Rather, they are qualified by how and why they're done. Motivation is everything. We garner motivation from perspective first, and that's what the Spirit's been teaching us in this series. So we have the right perspective. A quick practical example came up last Tuesday. Do or don't do that. What do you say when someone tells you to do or not do something for someone else? Should an ear tell an eye how to perceive what it sees? Think of that picture. Why would an ear tell an eye how to see? Why would an eye tell an ear how to hear? And yet we do that to each other, even in the body of Christ. When maybe we should mind our own business and be like, oh, you have your own gift and it's supernatural. Maybe I don't know what's best for you or what you should do or don't do. Should an ear tell an eye how to perceive what it sees? Satan will use fleshly lenses to influence us, even in the church. Just remember that you are the only person who sees what you see. Isn't that great? You're the only person that sees what you see. At the end of Romans chapter 14, happy is the man who isn't condemned in what he does. In other words, his motivation's right. He thinks he's doing it for the right reasons. He's doing it for God. Happy is that man, whatever it is. The activity itself isn't the issue. The issue is if he believes in his heart that that's what God wants him to do. Isn't that wonderful? And we all have our own roles in the body. And it's between you and the Lord, what you do with it. Part of laying down your life for others is simply functioning the way you're meant to in the body of Christ. It's different for everybody in this room. It's different for everybody in the church in some small way. No two people and no two gifts are exactly alike. Only our God could do that, right? Billions of believers throughout history, and everyone's gift is slightly different than the next person. Unique. You may be a little old pinky toenail, hardly ever noticed. God says be the best little old pinky toenail you can be. Seriously. You might have, not have what you think is an important role or nobody notices you. That's so unimportant. It's our flesh that thinks that's important. You might have that small role in the church that you think is small that you think isn't prominent. Uh, you might say a pinky toenail is useless, right? Well, what good is the pinky toenail? Come on. God says, oh man, who are you to question the sovereign creator of the universe? What's next? Questioning others in the body? And why stop there? What next will you question? Why are there nagging insects? Why are there certain mean animals? I don't know. Things that you don't understand? What, what's next that you're going to question? Only God knows the importance of the little pinky toenail. 
Maybe it will be to protect the toe someday from being gouged by a sharp object, which would have kept it from being where it needed to be the next day for God's good work. It's like how for years many doctors said the appendix was of no use or need to the body. How could that be? How could a whole organ in the body not have a reason or purpose, right? That poor old appendix was thinking, gee, what good am I? You know, he's sitting there in the body, the doctor's all around the body saying, you know, that appendix, it's useless. Look at it. What does it do? Now, if the appendix is listening, the appendix is like depressed. I'm of no good. Like the little pinky toenail. I'm of no good. What's my job? Look how unimportant I am. They say I'm useless. There's nothing good about me. And God says something totally different. If Mr. Appendix listened to the doctors, he would live a life without purpose. But that's only if he listens to the lies. So all of us in this room, whatever your gift is, anyone listening right now on the internet, whatever, whatever your gift is between you and the Lord, it doesn't matter how big or small you think it is. God placed you in the body in that position to be of value. Don't listen to the lies around you. On the board, every part is vital. Whatever part of the body of Christ you are, no matter how simple, don't listen to the lies. You have a divine purpose from your God and Creator as part of His body, period. And the other parts of Christ's body actually need you, whether they know it or not, whether they see why or not. If we are to function in greater love and unity, they'll realize they need you and you need them. So here's a final point that Pastor wanted me to share with you as we close this 30-part series on grace and works on the board. Some final thoughts. If you want to know grace, look to Jesus, who is full of grace and truth. John 1.14 If you want to understand godly works, look to Jesus. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much that you have given us our Lord and Savior as an example, as the author and perfecter of our faith. We ask that you help us look toward him to understand both grace and works and even the unity of these things in your plan. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of eternal life and all that salvation means and all that grace means. We ask that you open our eyes and our hearts to your way of thinking and the big picture so that we don't stay in our own fleshly thoughts but we're open to the miracle of salvation and all it entails every day of our lives. 
Father, we ask that you help us bring these truths out to a lost and dying world that needs it so desperately, especially help us share the good news at this wonderful time of year, remembering the birth of your son. It's in Christ's precious name we pray, by the power of your spirit. Amen.